Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hello, everyone. Man, was that something or was that something? I don't know if you finished watching the final installment of the Beatles Get Back Project, Get Back documentary, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty certain it's one of the finest documentaries ever made, like ever in the history in the history of documentary filmmaking. It will go down as one of the greatest. It's just the greatest really truly i i was just in awe the whole time and you know i feel like i've been really hard on the beatles and i've been a little hard on peter jackson and i just want to reiterate that this film this whatever this is this mini series is such a uh a ginormous undertaking it's such a um it's a masterpiece it's just it's so well done and you know to an extent it's not as revisionist as maybe i was you know pushing i was pushing the revisionist angle really really hard but by this third episode i really you know it really just does not go down the way that it does when you're just listening to the audio or what you're reading in books you have to see the whole the whole kit and caboodle and yes obviously it's still manicured and yes there is still bias and agenda, and it's not 100% the truth. But, I mean, it, it just was not, I don't know. I, I, I My mind has been changed greatly. Do I still think that there is, you know, troubled waters? Of course. And obviously the Beatles broke up right after this. So, I mean, they were headed, they were headed towards the end. But, you know, Let It Be has always been framed as something a project of failure you know a project that started off as one thing and ended up as another thing uh incredibly inferior and you know we had the Beatles you know sort of reinforcing this in our minds but what Peter Jackson has managed to do with this footage he has managed to show us that it's actually a a wonderful story of triumph through adversity I mean they just you know, self-afflicting adversity. They put themselves in this position in the first place. But to watch them, you know, soldier on and overcome all the obstacles and, you know, I it was like an epiphany watching it that when they're performing on the rooftop live, it's like, it's such a, um, it, it's an act of, of defiance and determination to do what they said they were going to do. To They set out, to do a live show and they did the live show that's right rue don't let me down oh no 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 don't let me down i mean it was just it it was emotional to see that footage man um this episode in addition to being powered by riotstickers.com which we'll be talking about a little bit later in the show this episode is also sponsored 
by Polar Seltzer. We're doing a prickly pear and citrus. So if you like drinking seltzer, and more importantly, if you like buying stickers, check out the uh, information in the description of this video. We will find out a great sticker deal. I mean, it's ridiculous. $29.50 for 53 by 3 stickers. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Let's dive into the show. I got my handy-dandy notes here. I got some I got some seltzers so that I stay lubricated. What is a whistle? Mmm. That's a good flavor right there. Seltzer, kids. Why drink beer when you could drink seltzer? Ha <laughs> ha. So they we we open the episode with they have decided to do to go up on the rooftop, right? They're 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 going up on the rooftop. They're gonna do the show. As we said, you know, they're they're not gonna do a TV concert. They're not gonna do Ooh. <laughs> Whoa, we got a Twitch person for the first time. <laughs> look look at the comment we got. Hey, with a face like yours, you can get a full-time job haunting houses. <laughs> Woo! Are you scared? Woo! <laughs> um, no, that was that was funny. Uh, so, so they decide to go up on the rooftop. They are going to do this. They were going to do a you know a, a show, a a concert of some kind on the TV. It's not happening. It's not. It's not going down. Um, we see George and Ringo. We see Ringo showing that he has this song called Octopus's Garden. And it's amazing to watch George help him flesh it out. You know, we watch kind of in real time as they try to figure out the next section of the song. And what's interesting is, you know, it feels like the song, like we know what the song is. The song is always the song to us, right? Like it's baked in to our subconscious, you know, it's Octopus's Garden. Everybody knows how Octopus's Garden goes. But it's like they're creating the song in in this moment. And what's so cool about it is it feels more like an archaeological dig. It feels like the song is complete and they're just trying to discover those missing pieces. Like like the that song was always that song and they're just sort of dusting away the dirt to find the whole thing and just sort of fire it up, if that makes any sense. So that's really cool to see Ringo and George doing it. And it's interesting that it's George that's helping Ringo do this. You know, none of the other Beatles are around. Uh, finally, John does walk in. And here's what I've noticed about John and Paul. Whenever it's a Paul, whenever it's a George or Ringo song, John or Paul always jumps on the drums, you know? Um, like that, those are songs that are meant for noodling on the drums. So it's kind of interesting how, how, how that always sort of happens. Like, it's almost like condescending, like, like we're not going to take you, uh, seriously in, in that kind of way. So that's interesting. Um, you have Mal Evans. Mal is, he's, he's taking notes. He's writing down the lyrics that they're coming up with for Octopus's Garden. And Martin, George Martin is sort of harmonizing, Paul then comes in with Linda and we meet Heather, who's Paul's soon to be adopted daughter. It's Linda's uh, daughter from a first marriage and she's just very playful. The Beatles are so playful with her. It's so wonderful to see the Beatles uh, interacting with the child in this kind of way. They're very solicitous, you know, um, it's like 
with Yoko comes the opening of everything. Like suddenly we have children in the recording studio. Everybody can come in now. So it's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, a quick note about Octopus's Garden. Uh, Ringo came up with the song when he quit the Beatles during the White Album because he was being micromanaged by Paul. He went, he was in Sar Sardinia, I think, off the coast of Sardinia on a ship. And the ship's captain was explaining how octopuses, because because Ringo was eating squid for lunch, and the, the captain starts explaining to him how octopuses like to collect shiny objects and create these gardens under the sea. And that's where Ringo gets the idea for octopus's garden, but he only has the first part. And George, George is helping him uh, flesh it out. And we used to always joke, I like to pee all over the seat. <laughs> An octopus's garden in the shape. That's a beautiful song. And it's also a storybook. Ringo turned into a storybook. It's the perfect storybook, you would imagine. Octopus's Garden, Yellow Submarine, two children's songs. Um, So then they start working on Let It Be. John's goofing on the words. And they just continue to let Heather play around. It's just so nice. They're They're so solicitous of the girl. I mean, probably helps that. You know, I mean, it's his fiance's daughter, you know, who's going to adopt. So obviously, he, but he seems genuinely bonded with her. So that was, I don't know, it was just nice. She's like six at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, what else is interesting, too, is Yo so Yoko starts singing. And I realized as well, Paul, every time that Yoko has sa sang on tape, Paul jumps on the drums. So it's like Paul almost can compartmentalize Yoko and her baggage and everything if he hops on the drums when they're jamming. That makes everything okay. Um, and we hear Heather reacting to Yoko's singing, and then she starts copying her, and John notices this and goes, look, Yoko. <laughs> um, this was amazing. Dig it, that like the FBI, like the CIA, like the BBC, like Doris Day, dig it, dig it. That was actually a part of a larger, loose, free free jam from the song Twist and Shout. They're doing this weird version of Twist and Shout. It turns into dig it. And we actually, there's so many times in this episode where we see, you know, the, the iconic Let It Be album, we see where that stuff comes from. And it is just, man, if you are a Beatles not like me, it is so cool to see that, you know? Um there's a moment where John, you know, we never see a bass in John's hand. We do know, I do know that John played the bass. John played the bass. George has played the bass on Helter Skelter. That's John on bass. He's doing the, the this punky bass with so much attitude. But um, here he is in the studio, but he's kind of like playing his guitar like a bass, like the heaviest strings, like they are a bass. Um, we actually, we watch them actually track Long and Winding Road and, it, it's amazing to hear what it sounds like without the Phil Spector stuff. I mean, you can go go check out Let It Be Naked, which is Paul. Talk about revisionist. That's Paul. You know, I mean, look, at the end of the day, whether Paul likes Spector's arrangements and Wall of Stown that he added at Lennon's insistence after the Beatles broke up, or maybe it's before, no, before the Beatles broke up because Lennon's already hanging out with Spector in early 70. But... It's a part of the history of the album. Let It Be is like this crazy patchwork. It goes from being a live album to a studio album 
to this Phil Spector wall of sound like pastiche. You know what I mean? It, it goes through so many metamorphoses before it winds up as just let it be. And I feel like that's just part of the history. You can't, you can strip down, let it be to get the original vision, but there was no real original vision for it. So it's kind of like, I, I feel like that's a little bit false. It's kind of like a false thing to do with that, you know? Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It's still, it's interesting to hear it. It's interesting to hear it without the, the overdubs, you know? I'm just taking a little note here. Um, so that was cool. And what else is interesting is that Paul, he's talking with George Martin. He's considering strings and he's not sure how to proceed with the song. So what's kind of funny is Paul makes such a fuss when Phil Spector finally adds strings to the the song, like, you know, a year later. But Paul was already Paul was already there. He was thinking about what he was thinking about it, man. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, we see we see them listening to the playback of the previous previous recorded day, and Peter Jackson just wants us to see how happy and jovial things are. There's a lot of that. There is a lot of happiness. You know, I over the summer and through all these Beatle videos, I've been telling you guys how much like how much this is revisionist history and how this is so whitewashed and how there's so many agendas at play here and i still think that's true to an extent but the reality is is that there was a lot of happiness man i mean there was it was when jackson talks about it being happy a happy time it wasn't a happy time but there were happy moments happening all the time those guys were going through hell but they weren't going through it separately they were going through it together as they were slowly drifting apart, you know, and we really see so many examples of that in this third one. We see George, we see George talk. We'll, we'll get to there. George talking about doing a song. We see John talking about Alan Klein. You know, we see Paul persisting with the perfection, despite the fact that the other guys are kind of done over it. You know, um, let's keep going on here. Uh, George, Harrison writes old brown shoe and he pushes himself to finish the whole song because of advice he had gotten from John 10 years prior, you know, like just if you start something, you got to finish it, which is also kind of a bigger, uh, it ends up being symbolic on two levels. It's symbolic of the fact that they started this, let it be this get back project and they have to finish it with let it be. Isn't it funny how they started with, it starts with a cry of get back and it finishes with a, with the acceptance of just let it be, let it be that we are splitting up, you know? Um, but the lyrics, I'm stepping out of this old brown shoe takes on totally new meaning. Um, and yeah, I said this already, whenever Paul isn't doing a Lennon McCartney song, he just fucks around on drums, you know? He's still bossing around uh, as they work on let it be, you know, trying to, trying to whip this material into shape. And George Martin, in certain instances, you know, when he makes the attempt, he's the last bastion of outside leadership that resembled Brian Epstein. They get flustered over how everything is miked and they're trying to uh, arrange long and winding road. And he kind of sometimes knew how to handle them. Um, they're just, they're having all these problems and he steps in and says, well, you got to do it like this and this and this. You have to go back to your old miking because the, the mics are creating weird sound for them. They're saying, look, if our sound is good, we'll be able to compose good. And, you know, 
that kind of thing. John Lennon always knows what he wants, and this is when he's talking about the mics and stuff. He John Lennon seems to always know what he wants, but he can never communicate it in technical terms or understand them. And we see this time and again. Go go look go back to um Revolver when he's trying to tell Jeffrey Emmerich Emmerich. He's saying to Jeffrey Emmerich, Hey, I want I want to sound like a thousand chanting monks or something. You know, like he just can't, he speaks in these big abstract terms. He's talking about like the miking situation, which is this really technical sort of thing, but he doesn't know how to speak technically. So he's just, he's trying to do his best to delegate something that he can't really verbalize. Um, they end up breaking for lunch and, and we see the state of the studio room and it's just, everything is still a mess. Remember magic, Alex messed everything up and they had to rewire everything uh, and you know that they have to wire in a patchwork sort of recording situation with with George's uh, uh, machine and their lashing mach uh, mixing machines together. And it's just interesting to see the state of the room that we've kind of gotten. We see it in the corners of the screen, but we we we, we see the camera really focusing on it. And the camera crew steps in, which this is interesting. The camera crew steps in, including. I, I think the some of the recording guys and they start jamming on the gear. It's so weird. I think it includes Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons, the Alan Parsons project, who's a, who would become a is a musician in his own right. He is working as the tape operator in in uh, Apple Studios, which is very interesting. Um, then we see John goofing off again. They're playing Get Back, and Paul gets is getting frustrated, and he finally says something. He, he goes along with it for a time, and then he goes, all right, boy, all right, John, I've got a call order, John. And he's really trying to put his foot down, and it's funny how John succumbs always, you know, knowing that he's been caught, you know, being cheeky, and he always just sort of rolls his eyes, like, all right, Paul, you know. Um, but he knows what he's doing. He's entertaining himself a bit because he's, he's kind of bored, you know. And um, Paul says, you know, valuable time, son. Call, cool down, son. Um, hey, Amy. Yeah, we're finishing up. We're finishing up the series and then there will probably be a final a final thought show because there's this article I want to read about Paul McCartney's uh, tragic genius and leadership. So we're going to we're going to talk about this like kind of like as an overall thing as we read that article. But this is the final part of our Beatles kick here. And I'm, I've started rereading that book about the breakup of the Beatles. And it's just interesting too. So I'll probably finish that book and then we'll do, we'll do, okay, Amy wants a Lennon impression. Well, Lennon's more like this. Joel, George is more like this. Uh, you know, I me mine. It's I me mine. I was watching this waltz and I thought I me mine. And Paul's more like the, Paul's up here. He's kind of up here too. And Ringo talks like this. But, but, jo but John, John, George. Ah, I can't get it. Sometimes you can't think about it. You just have to do it. You know, if you, if you think about it too hard, it's too hard to talk like the Beatles. But they all have, you know, I once heard someone say, I forget who it was, when you're doing an impression of the Beatles, you have to think directionally as you're speaking. So if, if if you think upward, that's Paul. He's up here. He talks up here and he talks like this and he goes, 
do. And whenever he's lying about something, he always scratches his cheek right here. And then you have to, I think you have to think left to talk like Lenin. And he kind of talks like, no, that's not it. Um, he goes, mm, trying to think of a, trying to think of a good thing. All right, Paul, let's do another take now. And then the right side is supposed to be George. George, he, he got to be, we went to India and we met the Maharishi and it was very spiritual. No, that's kind of like a, that's like an in, in between. And Ringo, you got to think down for Ringo. He's all the way down here. Something like this. It's just a stereotypical scouse northern liverpool accent so i'm not really i'm sorry i'm not doing it justice today it's just not it's not happening um but yeah paul's trying to rein him in you know and then glenn johns and glenn johns is the co-producer of let it, of the whole project right he's the co-producer and he worked with the beatles and glenn johns we haven't said it here yet glenn johns is a cool cat man what a cool dude you know, really, truly, just like, uh, just seems like such a cool guy. He gets along with everybody. Everybody really does when, you know, when things weren't so strained. Everybody's an interesting character and everybody kind of gets along through all the hardship, you know, uh, which was really nice. Um, Glenn Johns notes that they're goofing off on a take is calling them two, costing them two shillings a foot. So Glenn Johns, because they're once again goofing off and Paul's goofing off too. And they say, you know, this is costing you two shillings a foot. And John says, they, talking about EMI, they can afford it. And George says, George clarifies, it's costing EMI because we're EMI artists, right? Uh, but the reality is, is that they're in their own studio now. So is it cost? Who is paying for it? I was doing the math, two shillings a foot. So 20 shillings in a pound, right? Two shillings a foot is something like uh, 18 or $19 today. So it's like $19 a foot. How much, okay, one thing we didn't check, what I should have checked with the math, we don't know what how long the reels are. Let's say that the reel is 15 minutes of of reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape. Um, so let's ask Google, how long is an average reel-to-reel recording magnetic tape according to tone pearls records a typical open reel tape is about 50 microns thick sometimes it is called standard play with a full 10 inch reel of tape the play time is a bit over 30 minutes at 15 ips which is the common speed for a professional machine okay so ips is inches per second right this is really boring stuff i know so but this is fa it fascinates me so you get 30 minutes of recording at 15 IPS, which is 15 inches per second, which means 12 inches is one second. So, oh, holy shit. Yo, that's crazy. So it's two shillings per second, which means that they're paying essentially in today's dollars, they're paying $18 a second to record at least according to the uh, if my math is correct it's 18 dollars a second for them to record and there <laughs> there's 150 some there's 132 hours of well that's nagra so it's a little bit different that that is that is nutty butter man that is nutty butter
You see me scratching my nose. My uh, my beard needs to be trimmed. My, the nose hairs tickle. The the mustache hair tickles my nose hair. My nose. It's really really annoying. And every day, I plan to shave it, and I don't. And that's why you always see me scratching my nose. Some people think I have a cocaine problem. I do not. I've gotten comments like that before. It's kind of funny. Me, of all people. So that's cool. 15 IPS, two shillings a foot. That's nuts. That's nuts. And they say they can afford it. And of course they recouped nicely because Disney friggin' look, Disney bought this stuff or at least licensed it. 50 years later, they've made millions of dollars, okay? that They're doing quite all right for, uh, for their investment, you know? Um, and it's funny how they're trying to decide if they should do one more take and John wants to because they may never get, a, get another chance again. And he was right, you know? They really wouldn't, you know? It's like, if they don't finish right now, they're not going to. Well, that's not entirely true because they came back to, they did record more in January of 1970 without John. John was once uh, like September rolls around of 69. John is out. I don't think he does any more work on any Beatles songs. Could be wrong about that. I did check one thing though. I checked every song after 1967 hardly features John Lennon. How about that? So even when we see John kind of helping George with his songs, you you are hard pressed to find John Lennon doing anything more than some backing vocals or a little bit of piano or a little bit of slide guitar. That is it. He does not. He's not even there. And some songs, he's not even there for the recording. He plays a little bit on something. He plays a little bit on. Um, God, what else is he on? He's on For You Blue. We know that. I think he does a little bit on Old Brown Shoe. But I mean, again, name any other. He's not on Piggies. He's not on Long, Long, Long. He is on uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I think he's playing piano. Um, he doesn't play on Here Comes the Sun at all. Lennon is not on that song. So that's interesting as well. I mean, he really doesn't want to play on any of George's stuff. They have a very weird, di- there's a very weird dynamic between John and George. And, you know, obviously it, it, it came, it got very heated when George decided to leave the band. Um, they keep, they just keep going to get takes and they're trying to get the best one. Uh, George Martin suggests that they can always edit, you know, like you guys can edit. And John is totally taken aback by this because they're in the control. And he's like, what? Because they, they are, they want to capture an album as, you know, live as possible. That's the purpose of get back. Let it be to go back to essentially what they did with please, please me, please, please me was recorded to two track tape live in the studio. They recorded, please, please me. 10 songs in a single day. That's right. They recorded four tracks uh, prior, and then they did the remaining 10 tracks in a single day's session. They they had one track for vocals, and then the rest of the track was the instrumentation. The final song they did, Twist and Shout, on that day. That was 1963. And as we talked about, it's their set from 62, so that set that they had been performing nonstop and just getting it to like uh, just honing it and 
refining it and getting it perfect. That that's the set that they went into the studio and recorded. And now here they are. They it, what took them a single day is now taking them more than a month, and they're everything's patchwork. You know, that's the that's kind of the difference there a little bit. Except the well, the big difference is that now they're masters of the studio. They are you know just just hardcore perfectionist really paul is a hardcore perfectionist he's got this work ethic like no other man you know you look at the amount of output that that paul mccartney he is he is no matter what you say about paul mccartney dude is a genius he is a genius and it is true and i heard this take and i agree with it you know we're we're kind of like going on and on about like how they're they're you know struggling to come up with material maybe or you know, they're trying to come up with stuff for, or John is trying to come up with stuff and he just doesn't have anything. Remember, they did just do the White Album. Like, they're literally coming off of a double album and putting themselves in this situation. How many bands, like, today and, like, from, you know, that point on, like, they put out a, a double album and then they don't record another album for seven years, 10 years, 12 years. Some people go on and on. And here they are, literally, like, a month after they're done, month of december goes by and it's like boom they're already doing another album with brand new material it's just unheard of man it's totally unheard of so john is a bit taken aback that george martin you know wants you know suggesting that they can do some edits they've done it i mean listen strawberry fields forever is an edit they they took two takes and splice them together to get Strawberry Fields Forever, which John has always sort of resented against George Martin, you know, kind of thinking it's dishonest a bit. And he says, what are we, the Boodles? Um, they're just dead set uh, on recording live tape. Then we get to see the take that is used for Let It Be, which is really cool, at least one of them. What, you know, I said it here and I said it a couple more times as well. Watching part three shows what a triumph this ended up being considering the circumstances. But at what cost? It, the cost was the Beatles, you know. Um, you They know that it's over, but they're still sort of like together doing their thing. And what's interesting too is it's not just the triumph also comes from look how far things have come since that the Twickenham Studios in the opening episode. I mean, that first episode was so tough. It's it's a tough watch, man. It's brutal. It's like a slaughter. You're just watching them struggle and struggle and struggle to get it together. And now here they are. They've a month later and they've just they've come through the other side and they're going to do something. It's not what they anticipated. And that's the way art is sometimes, you know, that's been my experience, you know, in, in personally, when I'm trying to create art, you know, you intend for something to go one way and then you go into the production of the thing. And when you come out on the other side, it's not what you thought it was going to be at all. It, it's something completely different or it, it changes in some way, shape, or form for the be for better or for worse, you know? And that's just the reality of trying to create. So there's that to consider as well. Um, 
then you know there's a moment where you know john is doing the answering that everybody had a hard year everybody let the hair down whatever it is and he's just doing it he's so sarcastic he's he's just got like such a face when he's doing it and you could just chalk it up to him goofing for the camera but it just looks like he doesn't want to be there that's the truth um then they take appraisal of what they have gotten through they still have songs to do man and perfectionism rears its ugly head particularly in mccartney you know um it's grabbed a hold of him and he wants to be all sergeant pepper about it for those of you who don't know paul mccartney with a pile full of cocaine you know went back after they had tracked all of sergeant pepper and overdubbed his bass now generally speaking whether you're a musician or not it is really really uncommon to do bass last usually you build a track drums up so you'll do the drums and with the full band so the drums get a feel for the whole track with everybody else in the room but you're only really recording the drums then and the rest of that stuff the vocals everything that's all scratch it's called scratch so all the scratch they do away with and then they start layering the track bit by bit that's if you're recording in the studio multi multi-layered tracking whatever some people might just like look at the Stooges when they're doing Funhouse. They record that live in the studio. They're iso isolated from each other so that they're, they can do mixing and stuff. Because if you're not isolated, you can't mix, right? Or it's harder to mix. When the Beatles are doing Please Please Me, they're, they have to mix that live. They have to find the right live mix. They have to mix everything and then they record. Then they lay it down to tape which is nice in a sense because it's like it's all baked into the performance. You know, it's like they're doing the performance and everything is set where it needs to be set and what, whatever they get in, in the can, that's that's the thing. Adjustments are, are minimal when you're doing like live to tape recording like that if you're just doing two-track recording. Now, if you're doing multi-track recording and you got, you know, eight or nine tracks and everything's sort of separate... You can mix that stuff together. You can mix it until it, you know, starts to sound kind of good. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but generally, when you're recording, right, now I remember what I was saying. I totally hit a pothole. But generally, you, you layer everything after the drums. Then comes the bass. Then you do guitars. Then you do overdubs. And then you do vocals. Or you do vocals and then overdubs. Whatever. And McCartney, he's coming back in just high on cocaine late at night driving that train high on cocaine casey jones you better watch your speed and he's just coming back in and they're just dropping him in and he's just doing his bass he just wants to get those bass notes perfect and they do they're creamy round bass notes on sergeant pepper he can't be denied um then the the rooftop concert it gets delayed by an additional 24 hours because of bad weather remember it is it is january when they're doing this and then we get some shots of Linda, and I just, you know, I have to comment. Linda's beautiful. She is absolutely beautiful. And I'm sitting there just admiring her beauty. She's breathtaking. It's funny, uh, 70s Linda and definitely 80s Linda, eh, not, yeah, she doesn't really, I don't know, she kind of loses it, whatever it is that she has, but during these sessions like i i was very much taken aback by her beauty she's a she is she's beautiful um she's like this beautiful jewish princess <laughs> um and 
she talks about how it's a good thing. The one good thing about being a woman is that you can't get drafted in Vietnam. So that was interesting that, you know, there's some talk of Vietnam and that is interesting. Like, you know, if, you know, there was a draft, right. And people were getting drafted. And if you are not a woman, you don't have to worry about that draft, you know, for, for a lot of young men who, whether you wanted to go to war or not, there was a draft coming and it was something that you had to consider that you might have to put everything on, on pause because you might have to go to Vietnam. That's just, it was just the reality of the time. So of course this would come, this came up in conversation. Oh, it's a good thing I'm a woman. I don't have to worry about getting drafted because she did not, you know, these guys did not want, we're not about the draft. Um, then uh, they are trying to make a list of what to play on the roof and they are not sure whether this thing is an album or a performance. There's still a lot of confusion. They just keep going around in circles. It's like they decide to do something and then they go back, you know, and Paul's like, look, we always just do an album, man. We all just, we always just do the next album. This has to be more than that. It has to be something different. It has to be something more. It has to be something bigger. And they're just, there's just like a lot of arguing back and forth, not arguing, but just debate. And it's kind of like you just kind of wish that there was somebody who was the leader who would just take them all by the horns and just drag them on the rooftop. Um, and then they kind of decide, you know, Paul's like, oh, OK, we'll, we'll perform the ones that are essentially complete and record the rest that are still in pieces, which is essentially what they end up doing. But John is like, no, we should do the full 14, but we need like two weeks. Or if you want to do the No, Paul says, I want to do the full 14. John says, if we do the full 14, we need at least a month to six more weeks. And Ringo's doing the movie. And the bottom line is, and George Martin kind of says this, you know, um, you know, it's like you guys put this deadline on yourself. You could just put it on pause. Let Ringo go shoot his movie and then reconvene. You know, why is it it's why is it be all end all? I mean, thank goodness it was because then this might remain unfinished indefinitely or. You know, the fact that it went the way that it went is why we even have Abbey Road in the first place. If I go back to the anthology and George Martin flat out states that we uh, that he was uh, Abbey Road. It was like we knew it was over. We went back one more time just to, you know, go out on the right note, which is a bit pro prophetic, as we would later learn with the secret recording uh, in September of 1969. Right before the Beatles broke up, they had meetings and it was discussed that they would each get four songs and two for Ringo, you know, moving forward, a very democratic, which was really the right move. And that's ultimately the truth. They like had a solution for how to move forward in the future and they chose not to, or at least John, something happened in 24 hours after that meeting and John was like, I'm out, I'm out of the band. That's it. You're daft. I'm, I'm leaving, you know, then they go into love me do which was cool. We got to hear them do Love Me Do. A lot of old songs that come full circle ultimately surmise the ultimate, the, sorry, I'm not using the right words here. Um, the, not surmization, the, um, the, the ultimate of which I should say is one after 909, of course. Um, and, you know, I took a note here because they're having problems John, John John finally gets excited about one of George's songs. And it's one of the rare times that John is helping George with a song, right? And it's so 
something. He's helping him flesh it out a little bit. George admits that he's been noodling with it for six months, all the way back to when they're putting the final touches on the, the White Album. And I forgot what it was. It's like something about the show. You're asking me if I'll go to the show. I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. And then um, it's John who suggests, he says, hey, just use a placeholder. So it's like, um, to say cauliflower as one of the things. Kind of like when Paul came up with the idea for yesterday, but he didn't have the words. So he used scrambled eggs. Oh my goodness, she has such lovely legs. Those are the original lyrics to, to yesterday. Um, and I wrote here, for the sake of creativity, and this is true, this has been my experience in, in my endeavors to be creative. For the sake of creativity, it is so important to place uh, holders instead of getting stuck on the bits that don't have... Uh, that, that you don't have down and set in stone yet, you know? So this happens all the time when I'm, you know, when writing screenplays, you will, I will, you know, I'm sitting there writing a screenplay and then all of a sudden I spend however many goddamn minutes trying to figure out what the name of this character is going to be. Oh, this, or what happens right in this part instead of just moving on and you get so weighed down because you know, there's so much block writing, writer's block surrounding the thing that you end up, it's almost like a form of procrastination. You don't make any progress. It's very demoralizing. So the best thing to do is just sort of go, okay, well, you know what? Until I figure out the guy's name, his name is Peter and just move on because otherwise you may get stuck and never break out of that creative rut. It's a great, it's especially important in writing. You can't figure something out. Just put a placeholder, move on. You'll come back to it and you'll figure out something will come to you or you'll do another pass and it'll all make sense. You know, that kind of thing. Okay, then something, this is just, I, I think the average, this is not about being an elitist or anything or like an elitist Beatle fan or whatever, but I feel like the average Joe or Josephine is not going to know what happens here or not recognize the significance of what happens here. We keep we keep talking about this guy, Alan Klein, and finally his name comes up once again, uh, and this time in a big, bad sort of way. And it's the, 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 the circumstances of how it happens, the fact that this was caught on film, it's just, it boggles the mind. Paul leaves for a meeting at 1.30, right? And John leads the band through I Got a Feeling and then mentions that he's seen Klein and that he thinks he's fantastic. John is trying to get the others on board without Paul there to nix it. That was what was so obvious to me. And this was behavior that John had kind of, you know, done. He'd done the same thing with Brian Epstein a bit. You know, Brian Epstein was gay. Brian Epstein was in love with John. And John knew that Brian Epstein was in love with him. And he used that to his advantage to sort of, you know, flex on the band that was his already that he where he was the leader. And so here is John sort of being sneaky deaky for whatever reason. I don't understand why, but he's being a little sneaky deaky, you know, maybe because he knows how you know, because we've talked about and he recognizes everybody seems to be aware at this point that Paul has really assumed this sense of, of leadership and that Paul might nix the whole thing and that John really likes what Alan Klein 
has to say. It's 52 minutes, man. And it's just this irreversible thing that ends up just, just destroying the Beatles. When this whole thing is over at the end of January and into really into March, that is when it becomes three versus one. And it, the, for the first time, the veto doesn't work. And, you know, John, Ringo, and George are just like, Paul, this is what we want. We have to sign with Klein. And Paul eventually acquiesces. And it's Paul that kind of gets them all out of it by suing his three brothers, you know. Um, John said, I've seen him, and it's very interesting from a lot of angles. I mean, that's pretty explosive, you know. Um, John pulls back saying he wants to tell everyone all at once. So he like kind of lets George know that he's seen Alan Klein and that Alan Klein is like a magic kind of guy for them, but that, you know, we should all talk about this together, but this is a primer for sure. You know, it's sort of like John is laying down the footwork for where he wants everyone to go. And he's doing it without Paul around because he doesn't want to deal with Paul sort of shooting everything down. Uh, John says there is a lot of inter interesting news about them, them being the Beatles. Uh, but just to let Klein tell them about it, uh, George and Ringo, because he knows everything about everything. And he's referring to their money and more specifically where it's gone. So so John's like he knows about our money and where it's gone because, you know, the Beatles were so mismanaged and they lost so much money, even going back with Brian Epstein. You know, John admits that he was with him until two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, he he went he was so enthusiastic to meet him. He met him at the Rock and Roll Circus, which was the Stones project that he played. The dirt, he was the Dirty Mac. Um, but he's just been hearing about Klein for years. And, you know, he talks about how they got better royalties. The, the Stones had better royalties in them. Just all this stuff. Um and, you know, it's interesting how George wants to please John and sticks it to Paul, you know. So this is like a way of George sticking it to Paul and sort of being, you know, George wrote a song about Paul when he left the Beatles called Wawa. Wawa is about Paul McCartney well, or about the situation. Wawa, you're giving me a Wawa. It's a great song on All Things Must Pass. Um. But it's interesting how, you know, and Ringo see, just sees Ringo sees that it's it's in his best interest to side with those guys and not side with Paul because he knows uh, on some level, you know, Ringo's been burned, too. So it just really they become very separate as a result of, of these business dealings. Um, Klein convinces them that he can just fix the money mismanagement and get their money back. Klein's the devil who easily charms John. He explains that he wants Klein to look after him and didn't really, this is, end quotes, this is what John says, didn't really want to say it sort of half of you. So meaning he didn't want to like just say it to just half the guys. And also that, you know, he didn't want to speak for them, but that he wants his affairs looked after by Klein and that the others are tied in. So we we all better, we all should do it. You know, because they're all tied in together. Um, John says that Klein knows so much about them and what they've done and what they will do. And John and, and John loves how Klein just sets things up like he did for the Stones. You know, Klein 
is the type of guy that just, or at least he convinces John, yeah, you just, you tell, oh, you want to put on a rock and roll show? I'll do, I figure out all that stuff. Oh, you want to put on a benefit for Biafra, which is a country in, in Africa where you're familiar with the term, that's where Jello Biafra gets his last name from, Biafra. You know, there's a food crisis and John is just amazed that that Klein is telling about his plan and his plan was to use the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, the proceeds from the album, uh, to buy food for the food crisis, to feed the country, which is something that the Beatles, you know, and all rock and rollers, it's like, you know, uh, irresistible to them. Philanthropy through music. Oh, I'm going to use my music to heal the world. And, you know, and, and he mentions that George... Harrison, John does, that George Harrison had an idea for a film and that, you know, hey, Klein can help you with that, that kind of thing, which is foreshadowing exactly what happens to the concert for Bangladesh and the disaster with the money afterwards. George put on a concert for Bangladesh, which was an Indian country, um, you know, starving, and all the money that was raised, you know, he had some Beatles there, all the money that was raised... Uh, got tied up. It never went to the cause that was intended. It was a huge disaster. What's up? We got Walter White in the house from New Zealand. We're talking about your countryman, Peter Jackson, and the stellar job he did on this series. Um, so that's interesting, right? And now we see John is happy to play on George's song, even though he won't appear on the actual recording because he wants George to sign with Alan Klein, you know? We get another scene of George. George, he's always sending Mal, Mal, Mal Evans, their their roadie assistant, whoever. That they're always he's always sending him out for clothes. First he wanted uh, neckties, and now it's it's about shoes on Bond Street. You know, again, the the spiritual Beetle is one of the most materialistic Beatles, even though he's you know it's kind of funny. George is all about money and things and cars and whatnot. Um, then we see that little, uh, what's it called? The, the, the little elect electronic organ that, um, you know, David Bowie would end up using on on the Space Oddity. I think it's called a styro, styro organ or something. You know, a little electronic metal organ. And John had gotten it from Japan and Billy Preston's trying to figure out old brown shoe on the organ. It's really funny to watch, watch them do this, figure this out. Paul uh, Paul comes back after his meeting and there's no mention of Klein, which I also found kind of interesting. But maybe he knows that they're going to be doing something with Klein uh, or that they're going to be having a meeting with Klein so that maybe it gets talked about and Peter Jackson just left it on the cutting room floor. Who knows? But, you know, I feel like if it was there that Jackson would include it. Jackson really does. You know, I, I was, again, I was listening to this podcast. And they're talking about how Jackson is just this uber mega fan. He really is. And there are so many like clues and little nods and little subversive little bits that are meant for Beatles fans that know, who know how to, to know what to look for, you know? And it's just, that's, that's just Peter Jackson really just doing a stand up job for the fans in that kind of way. Um, uh, John plays Paul. Uh, oh, yeah. Then what's funny is John ends up playing Paul to George. So, you know, the way that Paul scolds John for messing around. Now, John is doing the Paul thing. But to George, who's mucking around a little bit during John's song, Don't Let Me Down, which is kind of funny. Oh, it's my tune. So now we got to take it seriously, you know.
Um, then th there's a bit where George Martin suggests that they tune up. So here's here's George Martin trying to be like the, you know, again, like the elder statesman, you know, leader leadership guy. And John does something kind of disturbing. He jumps out of his chair and mentions that he's had wine and to remember Bob Wooler. And Paul jokingly says, don't, don't do it, John. Don't do it. Uh, it it's, it's a joke that's based on a really serious incident from the beginning of the Beals' career that might have even sidelined side the Beals' career because there's this guy, Bob Wooler. I don't know the whole story. Basically, John Lennon got really drunk and almost beat this guy to death. That's right. John Lennon, we know that John Lennon was not a perfect person and did a lot of things, a lot of nasty, terrible things. One of them was that he beat Bob Wooler within an inch of his life in 1962. And now he's making a joke about it to George Martin, the guy who is the fifth Beatle, you know? It's just kind of interesting how they do have some animosity or they, they're hostile. They can be very hostile towards George Martin in a certain way. Um, and then we see that the, the take that they're recording for don't let me down is the one that's used on the b-side for their net for their next single um and then we hear the earliest versions of i want you she's so heavy from from abbey road you know um it's really cool to hear it in such a, a primitive form we get paul he's doing um some percussion with like a maraca or something and then alan klein actually shows up he doesn't show up on film but the beatles all go to meet with him and that that blew my mind um there's some more talk about what songs they're going to do i guess on the rooftop and they decide to do five or six songs and ringo suggests that before the 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 day of the concert just let's go over them over and over and over again since it's so few. Let's just get get them uh, get them good. And they, they start talking about Alan. They're in a recording studio. And once again, Paul is not around. It's just Ringo, George, and John. I mean, there's got to be something to this, right? It's very interesting. And Ringo wants to know if, they, if the meeting went longer with Alan, suggesting that Ringo left a bit early, right? Um. John John admits that they talked till 1230 going through everything and then Glenn who Glenn Johns who's worked with the Rolling Stones and worked with Alan Klein he knows Alan Klein so they're talking about Alan Klein and he says he thinks that he's a strange guy but very very clever and um, you know it's just so weird that Paul is not there and you know John ends up admitting that they're you know all kind of like hustlers you know. Um, yeah, I decided to go with the back, right? I couldn't find my other hat. So I'm wearing a very old, this is a very old fitted hat, you know? Um, but yeah, had to do it, had to do it. So John admits that, that, that they're all hustlers hustling, you know, Ringo admits that Klein, here's what's interesting. Ringo recognizes, they, they all seem to recognize that Klein is kind of a con man but that he's a con man on our side for a change and that all those other con men were always on the other side, meaning that they have one of the, the con men working for them this time, which is what they need. They need someone that's going to fight fire with fire, I guess. So they recognize him for what he is and they still want to get into bed with them. Um, Glenn thinks that 
he's an extraordinary, that Klein is extraordinary in the way that he speaks to the Beatles. You know, he, he notes that, that Alan Klein is charismatic and also very sort of, you know, uh, calculating. Glenn notes that if he asks you a question, Alan Klein, and, and you are halfway through answering it, and he doesn't like your answer, then he'll just change the subject. And Glenn admits that that really bugs the crap out of him, you know? Um, but John is impressed with Klein because what does Klein do? He he goes out of his way to know everything about the Beatles. He studies them, you know? He knows everything about Yoko. He's talking to Yoko and he's, well, we don't see this. This is from elsewhere. He's talking to Yoko and talking to Yoko about her exploits. And now here's John who loves Yoko the way that he does and crazy about Yoko. So of course he's now gained the confidence of John Lennon for knowing all this stuff about Yoko. It's it's very manipulative and it's very brilliant. Um, then they, they start talking about the rooftop again. Hogg initially talks about having a nine camera setup in hopes of capturing something good during the performance. And Paul reassures uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg that the, the best thing about the Beatles is how things materialize or execute when their backs are against the wall. And he's not wrong. And he won't be wrong about the, the, the rooftop concert as we're going to see. Um, really, really funny side note where Ringo, just like a side to everything that's happening, Ringo blurts out to George Martin that he's farted. They're sitting next to each other. He just turns to him. He goes, I farted. Um, as this whole convo is going on about the cameras and everything. And he just wanted to let everybody know, because if he said nothing and sat there silent, it would be awkward and that it was better to tell them about it. So I love that Ringo just admits that he farted. It was just, I thought it was a G move. I thought it was awesome. But one of the few times that Ringo speaks, he says, I farted. Um, and once again, Paul is just worried that they'll have nothing but another boring album again. And John says, well, that's what we do. And Paul says, we're going around in a circle. Uh, George Martin tries to weigh in about the deadline being of their own creation, what we talked about earlier, and that they can wait as they've broken the deadline a few times before, which is true. They have, um, you know, they were supposed to do it almost two weeks earlier. And Paul gets nasty with George Martin. And he, uh, he tells him, he says, um, th that's why I'm talking to John about it and not to you. Ouch. You know, and he responds with that really quickly. And Martin lets it kind of roll off. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it wasn't that that bad, but it felt pretty brutal to me in the moment. Um, Paul wants to wait around another few days and rehearse all the songs one after another and then just do three songs at a time in piecemeal. And John thinks that they're just not ready to do the 14. He wants, we talked about this already, you know, he wants a month to six weeks to get everything to where it needs to be. But since they have seven, they should just do seven. Disappointing as it may be or not, they should just do seven. Uh, and then they start talking about they start talking about their relationship. Paul mentions he makes a comment about how they can't produce each other, uh, and that's interesting. That like you know, and and John kind of chimes in on this. Like nobody can really tell anybody what else to do. Like we can't tell each other what to do in that the way that we have been. You know, the way that Paul has been, because that's not how the Beatles operate. But they ultimately, they're just going around in circles, not sure having how to proceed. And it's a little frustrating. And part of me is like, why do we need to see all this? But it also, it illustrates 
a fraction of what they must have been going through, you know, in terms of like hemming and hawing. We see them jamming on a song, I forget which one, and we see Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, who you never really see around ever, at least not on video or photos and stuff. He He's he's pretending to play the piano, and they, they go to lunch. Paul and Mike go to lunch. You know, Mike eventually did release his own music, and he released it under the, band, under the name Mike McGear. And I'm not sure if that was at Paul's suggestion or if he just didn't want to be to suffer you know from famous sibling syndrome but it seems like mike has always been supportive of paul and paul's fame and success and if it was his own doing to call himself mike mckears whatever i think that's really admirable i think that's really cool you know uh, a lot of respect for that kind of like joe hill doesn't use his last name is joe king you know like He'd rather, he, he would rather just, um, what's it called, um, use a, a pen name to sort of get famous, do it on his own without his dad's help, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, then, again, with Paul's not around and we just have George and John, they always seem to talk when Paul's not around about, like, important shit. George tells... John about how he has so many songs that he wants to do an album for he, like he wants to do an album of songs on his own because it would just be nice to get them out of the way he says I, you know I, I've got my Beatles quota you know full for the next 10 years he has so many songs that he could put put them on Beatles albums like he's just stockpiled and he just wants to get them all out of the way and John is a little concerned he's like look I don't it would it'd be weird if the Beatles are doing an album but George is putting one out on the side and George thinks it would be nice if they could just, you know, sort of do separate things as well. And the fact of the matter is, John has done things with Yoko and the Dirty Mac by this point, both on recording. So why can't George do a solo album, which he will do very shortly? It'll be the first triple album in history called All Things Must Pass. Uh, George thinks that having an outlet will preserve the Beatle bit of it more. And he, he might not be wrong. Maybe if they had done separate things that would have kept them together. I mean, look, it worked for Kiss, kind of, right? A little bit. Uh, it's just funny how this stuff always happens when Paul isn't around because Paul would also sort of talk him out, talk him out of it. And, you know, George is like, well, you know, I was thinking about giving them away, but, you know, and then I, I realized, I was like, fuck it. I'd rather just do, do myself a little bit, you know, just be me. Like, why can't I have the spotlight for once? Um, so there's that. Then they do I Want You again, but this time the lyrics, I had a good dream. I had a good dream. Something like that. And Billy sings, you're black or you're white or you do you want to go right. And the song is kind of about like equality referencing Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. And just, I had a good dream. Like, I want you. I want you so bad. I had a good dream. I had a good dream like that. It's kind of cool. Um, and then it's the day of the big show, right? The big concerts coming. My back is hurting. I'm going to sit back here because my back is hurting. Oh, it's better. I feel like a lazy slouch, but whatever. Um, so Michael Lindsay Hogg is working now with 10 cameras, not nine. 
He's got five on the rooftop. One is on the roof across the street. Three cameras on street level and a hidden camera in the reception area of the Apple Beetle, the of the Apple building entrance. So they are, they're covered, man. I mean, they are really, 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 really covered when it comes to, to cameras, you know, um, they got everything set up. George Martin walks in and notices the hidden camera with amusement. I mean, this is great. Like I didn't, I never knew that they had a hidden camera in the reception area of the Apple building entrance. It most certainly does come in handy as we're going to see in the basement, Glenn Johns and George Martin will be recording the performance from the Abbey's uh, from the Apple Studios, right? Um, and they will also be able to monitor the events on the roof via closed circuit TV camera, right? And you can see it. You see it off in the corner. Um, as everything is being set up, the Beatles meet in one of the boardrooms upstairs, and they're still not sure about the performance on the roof. Paul has talked about how it would be really great. He says this all the way back in Twickenham, how if they're performing and, and the, the cops are dragging them off the stage. So, you know, kind of what they're, they're kind of trying to create a, a pressure cooker situation that might result in them getting arrested, which is just so cool, you know, even if it's a little bit contrived, but like they're trying to do something. What's interesting about the rooftop concert, it's 42 minutes long, something like that. And in the age of YouTube, it's only increased the legend of this rooftop performance and its mythological status. Like, you know, let it be because the the, the movie, the documentary that came out in, in May of 1970, it, it's never really gotten a proper release on DVD or Blu-ray. So, you know, the the footage that we have of it or what we've seen or what most people see when they're accessing it comes, in fact, from YouTube. And so YouTube is really, I think, in the last 15, 16 years, really sort of even further because we've read about it in books. We've seen it, you know, in pictures, but like having it on YouTube and really just being able to watch that this is the Beatles final moment. It just sort of really etched, uh, sort of set that in stone in a way, I guess. It, it, it's just amazing to see all of this footage. That's that's the honest truth. It's one of the most important moments in modern music his, musical history. And I'm not sure they exactly, they didn't exactly know that at the time. It's it's so well documented because they were making a documentary and a film, thank goodness. But had they not been, I'm not sure it would have been, they would, you know, maybe they would have had uh, a camera or two, but like, it's just, we have so, there's such a rich amount of footage and, you know, when we think of 54 hours and we've seen eight, eight of those hours and you have to imagine the rooftop concert, it's it's hold on 42 minutes, right? That was my calculator here. 42 minutes of footage times 10. So that's 420 minutes. OK. Alone. Um, with everything that's going on, 420 divided by 60 is seven. So, and you have to imagine there's even more than seven. So you can account for, uh, let's let's round it off. Let's be generous. Let's say that you can account for anywhere from 10 to maybe even 15 hours just being rooftop, right? 
just being the rooftop stuff? Maybe, maybe. And when I say hours, I mean, you have to remember it's 10 cameras covering the same 42 minutes, you know? That's what they mean when they say they have uh, 56 hours of footage, I think, I think. You know, we don't know, we actually don't know how to qualify that. Do they mean 56 hours not including coverage or including coverage? That's an interesting, that would be something to ask someone who interviewed Peter Jackson or something, you know? Um, the rooftop concert, it's like, I use this metaphor, this is what I said. It's like watching a a man who's drowning slowly just pierce the surface, like jump up out of the water and take the largest, greediest gulp of air. You know, like they're slowly sinking, but it's like they're also like this fiery phoenix all at the same time, burning as bright as they possibly can one last time. You know, I don't know. I wrote here, multicam. God bless you, Peter. It's the only way. And it's true, man. And they just, they make use of all the coverage with these gorgeous multicam shots. And, you know, you can watch that sequence of the third part of this documentary over and over again, and you'll be watching it in a different way because when you have split screen like that, the editing happens with the viewer, not with the editor. You're editing the film with your eyeballs. You choose where to look with your eyeball, and that's the cut you're making, you know, like the the splice or whatever. So you can watch that endless combinations of endless different ways. It's really cool. Really, really cool. I mean, one of the coolest things that Peter did, man. This footage, I would say, is better than the recreation of the Live Aid footage of Queen in 1984. That was a phenomenal feat, too, recreating Live Aid and that footage. I mean, it's really awesome stuff. But this, the rooftop concert, the fact that it's real, that it's unscripted in that way, I wrote, it's magical, it's brave. They're so brave. They're taking this material they haven't performed live in three fucking years, and they are de debuting. They're they're revealing new songs that no one's ever heard before live on a rooftop on a freezing rooftop. It's just so punk, man. The Beatles were punk, man. The the they they really really were. They had such a punk rock attitude about stuff, you know. It most certainly helped that they had a lot of money and that they had a lot of influence and power and stuff, but they are just, they're punk, dude. They're punk as hell. Fiend in a yellow submarine. <laughs> I dig it. Um, the, the POV shot from the building across the street, like that shot that they have, that view, is just so great because it really gives us a sense of the space especially via the sound. Like we hear how far away or we hear how the sound travels from to the other building. It's really cool. And you could tell it is so cold up there, man. It, it really is. It's really, really, really cold. I mean, they, they are freezing. And that's another talk about punk. Like they're up there, they're performing, and they're like, it's cold and they just don't give a fuck. And they're just still playing. It just, all of these things make the album Let It Be just so much. I, you know, I use, oh, oh, Let It Be was always just kind of like, yeah, it's Let It Be, whatever. 
but I just have such a newfound respect and and veneration for what Let It Be is. It just kind of blows my mind. It's it's part live album, it's part studio album, it's part documentary, it's all of these things at once. <laughs> yeah, Ministry of Dark Miss Minister of Darkness always says this. He says, "My first rooftop concert." listening to Paula Abdul's t debut cassette, uh, 1988 Jersey Shore rooftop. Yeah, bro. Sure. <laughs> I like that uh, cartoon, you know, when she's dancing with the cartoon cat. That's fun, you know. Um, I feel kind of like Jabba the Hutt leaning back in my chair as I talk to you guys because my back is hurting. But, you know, the show must go on. We must finish. Oh, do do solo. Um... So not only is this the first and last time since three years ago, but it's also brand new songs that just have never been heard publicly. It's astounding. And people are just like, what? That's the Beatles? You know, people nearby, they're starting to come out. They're starting to listen to the show. And they're down on the street with the three cameras. They're getting people's reactions. And one dude just complains that it's too loud. Another dude's like, I hate the Beatles. Just, these guys are idiots, man. I, 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 here's the thing. You are entitled to your taste. You are. I can't deny. But when you go around just slagging off at the Beatles, like, have some fucking respect. Like, you know, oh, yeah, they're just so overrated. What is overrated about them? There's nothing that's overrated. They are just, they're incredible. But it's, like, so cool. It's so chic to, like, t uh, uh, tear down the Beatles you know, it's funny. There are certain, I know certain musicians that are like, oh, Beatles suck. And it's just like, how can you call yourself a musician and not understand the Beatles? I feel like it's not even a matter of like, it's not like trying, it's not like um, conformist or anything. It's just a fact, right? Like, like it's summer, so it's hot outside. Like, that's a fact. That's not like, oh, yeah, winter's so overrated. I'm talking about, like, summer being hot. That was actually a weird example to use. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like we're, we're talking about we're, we're talking about greatness because they were great. Like, it's not it's not up for debate, dude. It's just not up for debate. So when I see someone being contrarian like that, it just I'm just always just like, like what is your deal, dude? Like, what? Okay, so, like, they could be like, oh, yeah, you know, the Beatles not really my thing, but I uh, recognize them in some way shape or form but you get these it, just these these morons and you know what i really think it comes from it's just like it's just like penis envy man that's what it comes down to i think oh they're not that great they're not that great yeah rue you said it perfectly man you don't have to like the beatles but respect the craft of the art i'll tell you something i'm not a fan of bob dylan i'm not i don't get dylan at all i just don't get it, it goes right around right over my head dude right over my head but i respect dylan i understand dylan i understand what dylan did you know what i mean what he's done you know why he's so important to music you know i mean look what he did to the beatles how he how he influenced the beatles but that like that's my point is that like yeah, you don't have to like necessarily like or connect with the music, but recognize like, wow, they were incredible musicians. But you get these guys, oh, they're not even that good, or it's so easy, or blah blah blah. 
Ringo Starr. It's like, shut up. What do you know? Clearly nothing. Clearly nothing. That's that's me. That's me. What can I say? So let's get back to our story here. It's just so cold and you could just tell it's freezing, man. Um, people listening to the show, people are complaining it's too loud. So now the cops are trying to get in um, by the second song, uh, Don't Let Me Down. You know, remember, they only they only performed like five or six songs, but they did them multiple times. So the total runtime of the show is about 42 minutes. They're trying to get in. And, you know, the hitting camera comes in handy. Michael Lindsay Hogg, he's a friggin' genius. Uh, the cops tell Apple's employees that there have been 30 complaints in a half hour. So 30 people are idiots who don't like, aren't grateful that the Beatles are performing a surprise concert of brand new material, you know? Um, Minister says, Jeff, you're a good sport. Dylan, I love, but he can't but he can go to, yeah, like that, but that's my point is that like, look, like we don't, we don't necessarily have to connect with the thing, but just recognize why they're important. Recognize what they've done. I know that there's something to Dylan quite clearly. I just don't, I don't hear it in the music. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I, I've tried a little bit and, you know, of course I appreciate like a Rolling Stone and you know, uh, all along the watchtower and how does it feel? These are great songs, man. But like, you know, if you're like, all right, Jeff, blonde on blonde, right. Or blood on the tracks, like lay it down for me. I'm like, bro, drawn a blank. Don't know. Not my thing. That's it. That's it. Same thing. Some people would say, you know, you know what, who I go to in that situation. I know it's not exactly the same parallel. I'm a Lou Reed guy. I like Lou Reed. You know, I know it's like, that's apples and oranges, but I don't know. Just like when I think about like um, just sort of solo musicians, I guess. I'm, I'm a, both are incredibly influential, right? Dylan was very influential. Um, Lou Reed was very influential. Um, so that, that, like I said, the hidden camera, it's come in handy. Michael Lindsay Hogg, he's a genius, man. Um, the cops tell Apple employees that there have been 30 complaints in a half hour. And it's just like, fuck them, you idiots. What a bunch of idiots. Who cares? The cops just don't e even seem to understand what's going on. They don't even know. Like, I think don't, I'm not, I think this was a revelation. The cops didn't know that the Beatles were on the roof. Right. They think they're like, why is it coming into the street? Can they turn their stuff down? They think they're in the studio. And the best part is the Apple dude who's talking to him in the in the lobby. He never lies. Every single thing he says is true. He's just like sort of not revealing that they're on the roof, you know. Um, and this is where I took this note as I'm watching this in awe because this is the perfect Michael Lindsay Hogg had the perfect climax to a documentary. He just couldn't see it he couldn't pull it out because of the breakup and that's the ultimate truth let it be is hindered fails is hurt is damaged by the fact that the Beatles broke up right afterwards but where Jackson succeeds is he has 50 years for all of that stuff to sort of like wash away in a way where now we can look at all of this for what it what what it is and we see the genius 
of Michael Lindsay Hogg in documenting everything that he documented that day. I mean, he's a freaking genius. Here's what I wrote, and this is the truth. There is nothing failing about the Get Back Project. It's like, you know, time and again, as I'm watching this thing, it's triumph over adversity, man. They're, they're going up on the roof because they said they were going to go up on the roof and they were following through. I just have so much respect and admiration. They're, they started off this project. It wasn't going the right way for reasons that were their fault, by the way. You know, they're trying to make this thing work. And yet still, they're like, we can't, we have to do the thing that we set to do. We have to try and get back. It all it all flows back to get back. It's just so inspiring and incredible. So it's not a failing. Get back didn't fail. It just stayed dormant for 50 years, 52 years. And now we get to see how it was a triumph over adversity. The Beatles would not survive, but this didn't kill them. And that's the truth, you know? Hog knew there could only be one Ringo. <laughs> Man. Um, then we get a, you know, we see, they notate every time a take makes it onto the Let It Be album. They let us know because it just adds an extra layer to what you're seeing. You're like, holy shit, I'm watching the recording of this thing that I've been listening to since I've been alive, you know. So it's like, I've got a feeling on the rooftop that makes it to let it be. It really is. It's the livest live album, right? Like, it's amazing that they that that I've got a feeling that was recorded live on a cold, windy rooftop by the Beatles. Like the the first time that they play it live, they did do what they said they were going to do. You know, about what however many tracks, like four, five tracks on their new album were tracks that had never been heard before, played live. I mean, it really is. It's In a way, it's almost kind of like a concept album. In a way, it's almost like the Beatles is the anti-Sergeant Pepper, but Let It Be is kind of like the anti-concept album. Right? Right? If Sergeant Pepper is the proto-concept album... It's like they're doing these things in like parabolic ways. They go from sort of inventing the concept album to inventing the anti-concept album or, you know, um, sort of doing the minimalist, going in a minimalist direction with the white album. It's just, oh, God, they fucking fascinate me to no end. And it's just so funny to see these police are such buffoons. I don't want to, no offense to anybody who's from Britain. No offense if you're a Bobby or a cop or whatever the hell you are in 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 in, the, in England. But it seems like in the 60s, man, these guys just seem like a bunch of buffoons, man. They really do. They really do. Well, some would, <laughs> I'll shut my mouth. Um, they're just, they're just like, they're walking around scratching their heads. They're just party poopers. I don't know. It's just really funny. Like none of them have any levity. Like you can't, just can't recognize that these are the Beatles performing a show. Everybody's enjoying it. Who cares about the complaints? Just let it happen. Um, There's a great moment where they all stop playing to have a look and see everyone gathered below. And it's amazing how in this last hour, 
like because that's what the last hour is the rooftop but we've been preparing this for almost seven hours we've we have seven hours of buildup that bring us to this legendary moment um the the comments from people on the street are just so great and 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 the bit like i said the beatles they they stop playing to have a look and see that everyone's gathering below which is fun you know um Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Dude, uh, you know, as I've said on this channel before, the Beatles were the Ramones before the Ramones. If you go back to the Hamburg Beatles, clad in leather, playing simple three-chord rock and roll, man. They, they that, that That is Ramones, man. That is Ramones. Um, then they do one after 909, and this one has a special meaning, and it also comes from the rooftop. I mean, this is so cool. One after 909, I think Minister of Darkness actually mentioned previously that this was from 1959. I knew it was an early song. I didn't know it was as early as 1959, though. So here they are 10 years later putting out, recording what essentially is their final album, even though Abbey Road is sort of their final album, too. And they have one after 909. They just, they've come full circle. You know, th this... Watching this has really given me a lot of closure about the breakup of the Beatles. They, it was so meant to be. It was so meant to be this way. Everything happened the way that it was supposed to happen for them in that kind of way. And it's just a shame that we were robbed of any kind of meaningful reunion in 1980. Oh my God. <gasps> I didn't even freaking realize guys in a half hour it is been 42 years since john lennon left us isn't that crazy wow well actually it would be 24 hours from now it's 11 o'clock so 24 hours from now technically so tomorrow is the day that he died but it's really 24 hours from now is when john lennon leaves the earth forever after being tragically murdered. That's so insane. Um, they do for uh, uh, they do dig a pony. And John needs words. So they get their um, roadie. They get their roadie. And they, they have. I forgot his name. I actually just watched an interview with him. He's such a cool guy. <laughs> yes, it is. Get Back is fucking awesome, dude. It really is. Uh, but it's just awesome that that dig a pony is being done and John needs the words, you know, meanwhile, the cops are downstairs and Jackson's just so brilliant. He's cutting back and forth, back and forth between what's happening with, um, the, 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 the rooftop and the, the police downstairs. And like I said, Mike, Michael Lindsay Hogg, he's capturing all this stuff in the main, in the main, uh, you know, in the front office area, cops are making phone calls, Mal runs interference with the cops. He, he, um, I, I said, Mal should have had a statue erected of him, man. You know, here he is. And it's so sad. You know, he would, he would be dead. He would be dead at the hands of a cop six years after this, seven years, seven years after this, this day, he would be dead at the hands of a cop in America. Um, which was the main, which is kind of the difference that the other difference is that in England, the, 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 the police are like, oh, poppycock, rubbish. You should not be making noise up there. I will have you all arrested. I will have you all arrested. And then 
cops in America, freeze, motherfucker, I'll fucking blow you away. You know, just like, and they did. They they blew Mal away. He died by cop out, man. Crazy, crazy death by cop, as they say. Um, But Mal is just, he, in the meantime, he's a hero, man. He's a hero and he deserves a statue erected of him for just running interference. Um, the idiot cops, the, the receptionist spills the beans and the idiot cops finally figure out that they're playing on the roof and they're just so speechless. They're just speechless. They're like, it's on the roof for a film? Like these cops take so long to break it up and it's like they want it broken up. And that's what, again, the difference. American cops probably would have had that shit broken up real fast and there'd probably be like three or four dead people because the cops just start shooting up for no reason. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, um, uh, dig a pony on the rooftop is also a let it be take. So, uh, how many songs is that? I think that's three or four songs so far. I think it's three songs that have wound up on on the um on the rooftop. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, the dude downstairs he tells the cops that they lock the roof because people are trying to get up so the the, the buffoon cops are like oh okay i guess we'll just hang around here you know they're just like hanging around um just to show how badass the beatles are as we said they're performing in it's super cold outside and they're on a windy roof it's not like they're down at street level and the buildings are kind of shielding they're up on the roof in the wind recording this music that sounds awesome by the way the music sounds so good that's what's so crazy about this like dig a pony i got a feeling they're all coming out they're all bangers dude like it's not like we don't hear any like i don't know if you can we're not hearing that you know for on the on the mics you know my greatest enemy when i'm trying to record outside you know um oh my god yes Minister of Darkness, I that's what I that is what I listened to right before I got hopped on here. I listened to my friend Mo, Otis. That uh, he had the the Beatles roadie who was on the roof, the guy with the red hair, Ken, Ken Harrington, maybe. That dude, that dude was up on the roof and he was talking. He was talking about uh, being there. Point is, is that they're up on this roof. It's friggin' freezing cold. Lennon's hands are frozen. He's he he says his hands are too cold to form chords like you know when you're forming chords when you're fretting or whatever Lennon is freezing right now and they're just still doing it they're still up on the fucking roof man it's just like what a last stand you know it's just so awesome um they do a, a little god save the queen like the not like the sex pistols one the or, or God, all hail the queen what is it god save the queen da 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 uh, so that was interesting. And people are just gathering up on the roots and they're so stoked to see the Beatles friggin' um, playing. And the Beatles are kind of interacting with them a little bit. Uh, by the way, that roadie story, that roadie story that that uh, Minister is talking about, he's the guy who's holding the lyrics for Dig a Pony for, for John up on the roof. Um, then the oafish cops, they finally get on the roof and they witness the final concert of the Beatles. They're, they're, they're so undeserving. That was what I wrote in my notes. Fuck these cops, these piece of shit cops. Fuck them for breaking up 
the fucking Beatles' final concert. The, these oafish like fools who just look. You can't be doing that. You can't be having your concert up on the roof, you know. And like, it's just like, dude, you're witnessing the final concert of the Beatles. You're so undeserving of this because you're trying to stop it. As soon as Paul sees the cops up there, he gets super happy. You watch his face light up. Uh, and he turns around and he sees him and then he lets out a woo. He's so happy, dude, because he, he wants the thing to happen. He wants the cops to rip them from their amps and guitars and arrest them like it, for the film. He's trying to create this this ending. And it's just, you know, you might go again. You roll your eyes, and go, oh, well, it's being a little contrived. It's like, but no, it's super punk rock. As Rue says, it's so fucking punk, dude. So punk. Um, it, it it puts a little pep in his step. You know, he's hamming it up for the camera. He's doing like a, you know, he's like doing all these moves. Um, And then I wrote here, if it was American cops, they would have been beaten. They would have beaten the Beatles. That's what would have happened. I'm not, and that's not a joke. That's not a joke. You know, especially if it was like the 80s or like the early 90s, the cops would have had batons. Well, maybe not because of the Beatles and they're super famous, but the cops would have had batons. They just would have been, uh, I'll tell you something, that camera crew would get the crap beaten out of them. And I'll tell you, one of them might go, go, oh, he's got a movie camera. You know, see the handle of the movie camera, think it's a, a gun and, and, and pull out a gun and, and shoot him dead because that's the, that's the sort of stuff. Yeah, it was like going, Paul wanted to go viral before viral, viral could be gone, you know. But it's just funny to see how polite the cops are. They're just silently watching the Beatles play. And it's not the type of like, silence where they're watching the Beatles play because they they they're like actually in awe of what they're seeing. Uh oh, I just lost all my notes. Um it's not because they're in awe of what they're seeing. It's more because they're like, oh those they're performing songs, so we have to wait until they're done performing songs and then we could uh, go in there and break this up. By the way, anybody who's English listening to this, I apologize for um, doing this silly English accent. My, my deepest and serious apologies. It's just me goofing on them. I, I love England and I love English accents and I love you all. I just want to say that. Um, I don't mean to uh, absurd, uh, uh, upset or offend anybody. And if you want to make fun of my American accent, please feel free to do so. Um, I am fully deserving of it in in every every which way. You could do a podcast about how much of a stupid loud oaf I am. Stupid loud American being being an American. Yeah, right. It's breakup after tea time. YouTube didn't get beat up in LA, but they should have because they're you too. <laughs> Um, all right, we have uh, Walter, who's originally from the UK, says, no worries. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I really do. <clears throat> um, so, so then what happens? So Mal, so what else? Oh, so this is crazy. So the cops are just really polite. Um, without a second to spare, the song ends. It's Don't Let Me Down. You think, oh, well, that's it. They're going to, um, they're going to, that's it. That's the final song. Don't let me down. They're going to put their amps down. They immediately launch into get back. And you just see, you see George and you see mainly Paul just keeps turning around and looking back. 
he they are just egging the cops on but they're not american cops so they're not gonna beat the crap out of them you know um <laughs> it's not 1980s la you know like so they just they go into get back which is the final song kind of and Mal switches off the amp that George is using, and then George switches it back on. It turns into a standoff, dude. And George is like, "George, you didn't, you didn't want to go up on the roof, and now he's up on the roof doing his songs. They're doing the Beatles songs, and he sees the police. And Mal, he shuts it off. But then George says, "Fuck that, Mal. We're gonna play them. We're gonna play them until it's over. It's just so awesome, dude. It's just so great." So they, they, they finish and with get back the final, it was such a fitting song. It was so fitting that the final song is get back. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, it's just what a finale. Um, and then the, the little bit that you've heard on, let it be a million times. He says, uh, John says, I hope we've passed the audition, which is what you hear on, on let it be. And it's just so great, man. It's so great. Um, they go down. So here's the thing. They go back down into the basement at at Apple Studios and they're listening to the tapes. And immediately I am reminded, I don't know if any of you are into Wes Anderson or Wes Anderson films, but suddenly I, I just felt like the whole rooftop and them all like having a good time. It's just such a wonderful, warm, friendly note to end get back on, especially because of how sad like the bigger reality is that they're like breaking up like everybody's happy and laughing and feeling so triumphant for what they did and george martin thinks that it was a good dry run for something in the future you know and had klein not come about that they might have done something about it you know that might have happened or if ringo hadn't done the magic christian maybe it would have who knows what would have happened um but it's just so nice seeing them all listen uh, to the tapes back down in the basement. And and like I said, it just, it feels like a Wes Anderson movie, you know? Um, th they're gonna do more recording, but it takes a long time for all the stuff to come off the roof. So they uh, decide to finish the final recordings the next day. Um, Paul, the next day comes in the credits roll, by the way, now, and we're just, Peter Jackson just packing every last bit he can into this stuff and um into this thing because as it turns out he peter jackson who does extended cuts of everything finds out from disney that there may not be an extended cut of of get back and so upon hearing that that's why we were all wondering it, it was supposed to be six hours long all the beatles and all the disney people everybody who saw the film and approved the film approved the six hour cut Peter Jackson, who's a badass in his own right, he goes back in and he starts, he throws in, we get over almost two extra hours, about an hour and a half extra stuff because he's afraid that if they don't do the extended edition, this is this is all we'll get. So he extends it further. And the stuff that he puts back in, I would find out because I listened to an interview with him, the stuff that he puts back in are little sort of... um like plot element stuff like plot bits that sort of all sort of make sense or he, he says this he says the seven and a half hour version flows better than the six hour version because we added this stuff in and he said he, he told a story and i thought it was a very poignant story he says my my uncle used to paint bridges and 
it would take them three years to paint a bridge. By the time you, you get to the other end of the bridge, the, the, the stuff that you painted three years ago is already starting to peel and crack and degrade. So you have to go back and start painting the beginning of the bridge. And that's kind of what it's like editing a documentary, according to Peter Jackson. You know, like you you get to the end and you realize stuff that didn't make sense at the beginning makes more sense. So you got to go back and fix things. And so that's what Peter Jackson said. That was part of the process, which I found fascinating. Um, Minister of Darkness says, um, it's awesome at the end. They cut out the part where John's Rolls Royce ran over Ringo's puppy. Damn it, Disney. Oi. <laughs> Can't 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 be having that. John John's John's kind of like Cruella Deville, I guess, right? Um, so yeah, so it's a great way to end on them doing that. Then we see it during the credits. We see Paul is wearing what he does in the in the Let Back video, Let It Be video, or the Long and Winding Road, maybe both. They play Run for Your Life, which is kind of crazy. If you don't know what the lyrics are about Run for Your Life. We, we talked about how John Lennon is not a perfect person by any means or that he is a questionable person in in, you know, in terms of, you know, just his life. You know, he's a human, a very flawed human being that's done a lot of very uh, uh, unconscionable things. And um, one of the things that he's done, I don't know if you call this unconscionable per se, but, you know, he, it, it, let's just put it this way. This song did not age well if you go look at the lyrics of run for your life i mean it's really kind of grim it's about a guy who just like keeps a girl you know is in possession of this girl and that she better run away because if he catches her with another man he's gonna kill her and it's just such a very oh god but it's just so interesting to hear them playing that song of all songs you know um and then they play Two of Us for the final time, which ends up on Let It Be. It's that we're doing sort of acoustic version. It's sort of nice that we get one more day of them recording in the studio. And so by the end, by the end, you have, you basically have this sort of like situation where they they were struggling, they were struggling, they were struggling, and now they've gotten to a place where like everything's okay for a minute, for a minute, because Alan Klein is going to be that final thing that just sort of just, just permanently drives a wedge that is sort of irre. Here's the thing. There was a wedge that was driven between them and it was ugly and things were tense, especially that first episode. It's all there. It's all there. I, I stand by that, but, the last two episodes, you we see them overcome. We see them overcome the problems and get to a place where they can, you know, do the thing that they set out to do or the closest approximation of, of that, right? Um, so they play two of us and that ends up on Let It Be. And then I guess this also part of this, I guess this Let It, Let it Be also ends up on Let It Be. I don't know. And then all the way at the end, there's like literally 11, there's like 15 seconds left in the runtime all the way at the end. Paul still wants to do one more they, of let it be. And John says, we've got so many of the bastards and that's how they end the entire get back. Will I rewatch get back? Of course, I'll, I'll probably wait. I'm probably going to wait. Maybe I'll wait a year or something or two years. Actually, I kind of want to watch the anthology now to see how much more whitewashing and 
manicured it is compared to get back which definitely shows a lot more warts than i thought it would and definitely is a lot more honest maybe than i thought it might be or at least jackson is not totally shilling for disney he's telling the truth or the beatles he's telling the truth man like it was a happy time it was like a heartfelt time just 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 rising rising up against the 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 craziness of it all um so like i said so that concludes the review I'm going to do one more episode, but this is going to be more about um, Paul McCartney and his genius and his leadership skills and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Minister of Darkness wants me to watch it again tomorrow. I mean, I'm I'm so I, I, I'm so not like burnt out, but like I'm so overly stimulated by all the awesomeness that I saw. You know, like I need to like let it cook for a little while before i I'll, believe me i'll be watching that time and again i really do hope it does come out on blu-ray because i will totally buy that on blu-ray i need to own it yes i want the 18 hour cut too there is an 18 hour cut everything that we saw was taken from the original 18 hour cut kind of insane when you think about it um you know what else is really insane truly insane um, this guy at riotstickers.com. Do you know about riotstickers.com? Riotstickers.com uh, is a sponsor of this channel. We're powered by riotstickers.com, and they are running this insane promo deal. Are you a fan of the Beatles? Do you want to print up some bootleg Beatles stickers? Maybe not. Maybe Josh wouldn't be happy with bootleg Beatles stickers. Do you have a band like the Beatles, and you're trying to get your name out there or trying to create some brand awareness? Well, you can do it by getting some stickers at ridestickers.com. And the best way to do that is with a special promotion that that we are running right now here on the channel. With the promo code FROMUS, you can get 50% off. You can get 50 3-inch by 3-inch square stickers for $29.50. Look, it's right there. See that? Go into the description. You'll find the link. And then use this promo code right here. From us, boom. Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to like. Make sure to comment. Buy a coffee. Oh, Minister of Darkness says that he made an order and got hooked up. That makes me incredibly happy. Please let us know how they how they come out, Minister of Darkness. In fact, if you want, send us a picture of your stickers. We will post it here on the YouTube channel. I'll post it on the I'll do I'll do a community post. Um, but yeah, and if you like die cut stickers, those are the stickers that are shaped. You can get those for $34.50 with the 50% off code from us. Remember to use that promo code from us. Um, and you know, Josh, Josh is going to be on the show. Um, very soon we're going to be talking to him. So that'll be great. We're going to get to know more about him and his business and his experience with bands and stuff. And he also, he had this great video made, you know, who wrote this? The guy from less than Jake. Uh, wrote this track for Josh. Check it out. We make stickers, banners, and buttons too. Posters and promo cards. There's nothing we can't print for you. From stage backdrops to bass drum heads. We can print on shirts. We can print on hats. We can print on pants. 
RightStickers.com. RightStickers, we are the bomb. RightStickers.com. RightStickers, we are the bomb. Yeah, baby. So that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. That's right. You got to smash that like button. Oh, my God. In five minutes, it'll be 42 years since we lost John Lennon. Really is sad. Um, so sad. And to think that he was considering reuniting with the Beatles in Central Park. He was going to go and see Mimi. Um, just a lot of stuff. Just very sad. Tune in tomorrow, by the way. Because we are doing a very special streaming evil live show that you guys are not going to want to miss. If you guys are uh, Misfits fan, uh, Misfits Sam Hain fans, you're going to love this show. I, I I mean, this is a really special show, and I'll tell you why it's so special. Um, I I put out a challenge a while back. I, I said to anybody, I said, "Hey, look, um, I challenge you." to go out there and record Misfit songs like their Sam Hain songs, Sam Hain songs with their Misfit songs, Initium songs with their Earth AD songs, and Earth AD songs like their Initium songs. And this guy did it. And I got to tell you, I was very skeptical, but he did it. And it came out really great. And we're going to do a, um, we're going to do a, a, a listen through. It's going to be really, really, really cool. I mean, he really captured my imagination as my imagination was running wild with what it would sound like he definitely let's put it this way he knows this music well enough that he was able to show me what it would sound like and you know he did the best he could with the resources that he had and i was just i was so blown away so it's gonna be a very special show um especially because th these tracks were created because of the show we issued a challenge and someone out there and brought these things to life, you know, uh, which is really cool. So we're going to we're going to do that. Um, Minister, that's happening tomorrow night, probably around nine ish. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Watching the wheels. I mean, look, double fantasy is great. Oh, my God. Amy, just wait, Amy. Oh, my God. You're going to hear Sam Hain in a whole new light. You're going to hear. Earth AD in a whole new light. It's just going to blow your mind. Like, th this guy just totally understands this stuff, you know. And like I said, you know, he record. He told me how he recorded it. He recorded it in his basement. He recorded all the vocals in his car. So it's a very DIY operation. Let's put it that way. Um, and he does a great job. I thought he did a great job. He He nailed the assignment. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, that, so, so make sure you tune in tomorrow night for that two minutes, two minutes until the anniversary of John Lennon, John Lennon leaving us. I did not time this show with that, by the way, it just so happened to, to, it just so happened to be that way. Awesome. Thank you, minister. And thank you for all of your Beatles centric comments. I got to tell you. It's so nice when I see mis like the people that come for like the misfits stuff and the Sam Hain stuff. When you guys stick around for the Beatles stuff, it makes me so happy, you know, because those are two things you don't generally lump together in any way, shape, or form, let alone being on the same channel. 
but it just so happens that we talk about a lot of different stuff here on this channel so it's just nice to see um participation and in the comments in in regards to that it's really really great to me it's really really great um what else can i tell you i i, I don't know what else to tell you patreons if you if you haven't seen it already you have got to check out um this video that i posted it's a uh, patreon exclusive youtube casualties only it's a great video um has to do with cheeseburgers uh, you will really appreciate it it's a christmas present i guess you would call it holiday present um this is on december 23rd is when it's going to drop so keep your eyes peeled for that uh I'm, i want to do more videos like that i just need topics that come up that work for that sort of thing you know what i mean uh i don't i don't want to just make it for the sake of making it i want it to be you know i want to be inspired the danzig danzig beatles discussion i don't even know what that means what 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 dan oh th as to whether danzig likes the beatles i don't who knows man who knows that that's some crazy mojo there i, I really don't know um okay it's midnight guys it's, it's midnight a day in the life, RIP, John. That's right. We were waiting until midnight. Out of respect to John Lennon. Yes, the Beatles are punk. John Lennon. Nobody's more punk than John Lennon. You know what? You know what makes me sad for John Lennon. I, I I'm sad that John Le Lennon didn't live to see Twitter. I feel like he would be the biggest fan of Twitter. Truly. Um, I don't know. He's just like he's everybody's uncle, man. You know, he's like. And he just, he was a fucked up flawed guy who just wore his mind on his sleeve and wore his heart on his sleeve and wrote from his soul. That that Plastic Ono Band album, that first solo album, is so punk rock. And it's so good. It's so good. If you never listen to Plastic Ono Band, give it a spin. Maybe I'll do that today. I just wanted to wait until midnight to pay a proper salute. And, um, you know, uh, we'll say what we normally say. We're going to say peace and hair grease. And I'll tell you all about the Patreon. Hey, guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 
38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.